our parents. They aren't these indestructible superheroes that that we make them out to be because I mean for so long you know we were small and they were big and we all we're always looking up constantly looking up looking up looking up looking up hi there welcome to this is my family a podcast about building a life with the people you love I'm your host Tyler Green and I am so glad that you're here On today's show, we've got the incomparable Jay Ivey. He is a performance poet and author from Chicago who has done everything from collaborating with Kanye West and Jay-Z to winning a Peabody. But first, for those who are new to our show, I just want to say welcome. We made this podcast as a celebration and exploration of many beautifully messy ways that we make our families and the ways that those families end up making us. And so far this season, we've talked to world-famous drag queens, single moms, meditation teachers, educators, and so much more. And this is actually our season one finale. I cannot believe I'm saying those words. So if you're new, go back and listen to the first seven episodes before this one, especially the first one. It's the story of me, my husband, and our son, Sam. And if you've already been a part of this journey and community, Thank you so much for going on this little ride with us. I first met our guest for this week, Jay Ivey, at a concert I was producing in Chicago. Jay performed his famous poem, Dear Father, that night. Dear Dad, these words are being written and spoken because my heart and soul feel broken. I laugh to keep from crying, but I still haven't healed after all of my years of my goofiness and joking. You got me open, hoping this ill feeling will pass, won't last. I wear a mask and my peace won't ask for the truth. Truthfully speaking, the truth hurts, but I'm beyond hurting. I'm in pain. When I was a shorty, I thought she left because I wouldn't behave. Later on in life, I found out that it was the cane as well as other things. And with all the scars, it was hard, but I learned to forgive and forgave. I forgave you to fight the fight. That night, I had the honor of hearing it live, and the performance was so riveting that you could hear a pin drop. He also gave me his book that night, Dear Father, Breaking the Cycle of Pain. And after reading it and putting guests together for this show, I knew that I needed to talk to him. I really connected with Jay's story. We both had pretty amazing grandmas and complicated relationships with our dads. I wanted to talk to him about his career as an artist who talks openly about family trauma and forgiveness something that many, if not all of us, have, and move through or around with varying degrees of success. It felt like the right way to close out our first season of this show. So we talk about all that and more. But first, I asked Jay about what his family was like growing up in Chicago. The majority of my family, my immediate family, are Chicagoans, born and bred, with the exception of my father. My father, he's from Mississippi until uh, his high school years where he ended up coming up to Chicago. And my father was a DJ, so I would actually listen to my dad on the radio before walking to schools in the mornings. And uh, as a child, you're naive to the world, so you, you feel like you hear your dad on the radio, you feel like everybody's daddy's on the radio <laughs> it, it wasn't um i guess as big of a deal to my young mind at the time but as i got older i realized the impact that he was having on the city actually and on our community 
And then on the other side, my mother, she was a registered nurse. She worked in uh, Cook County Hospital where ER, the show ER is based on. And then after that, she worked at a, a dialysis unit on the South Side for a very long time. She was in the business of healing. And she did that every day, day in, day out, two jobs at times, double shifts, triple shifts. She did what she needed to do to provide for her three sons. So I'm the middle of three boys. Shout out to Virgil, my older brother, Sergio, my younger brother. Well, my dad being in radio and being in the music industry and uh, having the influence of the industry around, my assumption is that may have gotten the best of him because drugs and alcohol became a huge factor in his life, as well as trauma that I later learned, trauma that he dealt with as a child that Again, I'm assuming that he never learned how to heal those broken wounds. Mm. You know, after the fights and the arguments that led to separation, which ended up uh, leading to divorce, uh, my pops, he ended up out of work and it just got really hard. And my mother, she's she has seen what has happened with some of her brothers as far as the elements of the south side of Chicago and what the streets can do and how they can snatch loved ones away or transform their lives in a way that they don't maximize their potential. Mm -hmm. So my mom, she didn't want to see her three black boys be swallowed up by the streets of Chicago. So she worked double, triple shifts, saved the money, saved the money, saved the money. My older brother, he had gone to high school and finished. And I was up next to go to high school in the middle of my eighth grade year. My mom's was, uh, she was like, you know what? She was like, you're not going to high school in the city. And she saved her money up. And before I knew it, middle of my eighth grade year, we were moving to the south suburbs of Chicago, mm. to Matson, Illinois. Yeah. I'm, I feel like I'm getting a really clear picture of your mom. I'm wondering if you have any memories of, of your dad and, and maybe how he showed you love when you were younger. I distinctly remember being two years old. I grew very tall, very fast. And I had this little orange bike and my pops, he he took me out in the backyard and I tore it like closest to the alley. And he took my training wheels off my bike. And uh, he said, you too big for training wheels. Pushed me down that hill. And at two and a half years old, I was riding a bike with no training wheels. It was that, you know, that tough love. It was stern, but it was also going to the park to fly a kite. And then my mother, she was just always just very strong, tough, beautiful lady who um, who didn't take any mess at all. She just made sure that we had what we needed. You know, I remember being five and I was the hugest Transformers fan. I like that. That was love <laughs> Transformers. Screen. Oh, come on. Start. Come on, man. That was my, you talking my language, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I remember I, <laughs> my mom, she refused to buy me any Decepticons. She said, you can't have any bad guys. <laughs> so, so the fact that she knew what a Decepticon was is, is hilarious, but I begged, <laughs> I begged her, begged her, begged her for Optimus Prime. And I got that Optimus Prime, you know, I, <laughs> you know, she made sure that, you know, we had family time and we would take trips to Michigan, go up there and go horseback riding or uh, ride go-karts, go get ice cream. So it was just always, you know, it was just a lot of love and a lot of, a lot of uh, life lessons. 
as I was reading your book, I was struck by the golden rule teaching. So mm. I just was like, golden rule, that's it. That's it. Yeah. And my grandma all the time, do unto others as you would have done yeah. unto you. Like on repeat, she is also the first person, and I think this is true if I'm remembering correctly of you, close to me who died. Yeah. For me, when my parents were arguing or they were up to their shenanigans, like I would walk to my grandma's house. So she was like a safe haven for me. Yeah. So I wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about your grandma. She was an activist. She was very God-fearing. So she made sure we had spirituality instilled in us. And she would cook the big meals on Sundays and Thanksgivings. And very funny, like a real witty lady. And for me, growing up with, with somebody that was just so strong and loving. And I remember one of my funniest moments was whenever she answered the phone, she would say, God bless you. So, <laughs> right? so I'm, I'm at her house and um, somebody called and she said, God bless you. And they didn't say anything. <laughs> She's like, God bless you. And they didn't say anything. She's like, God bless you. And they didn't say anything. She was like, well, go to hell. And then hung up the phone. <laughs> I was like, well, grandma was off the chain. <laughs> she was off the chain. <laughs> yeah. Julia Johnson, Julia Johnson, JJ. I was devastated when she passed. Cause again, like, like you said, she was the first person I lost that was close. Like that was yeah. that close immediate family. Oh man, it was hard. I was in college. I was a sophomore. Yeah, it was devastating losing her. But my grandma being my grandma, I remember the night of the funeral and that night, first time in my life, I saw a fallen star. Hmm. I was like, okay, grandma, I know you're here with me. She's one of my angels for sure. Yeah. That's beautiful. I um I was on study abroad in London when my grandmother mm. passed and actually didn't go back for the funeral because we couldn't mm. afford to get me back. Um, wow. Yeah. But I feel her all the time. I actually yeah. had this very surreal moment with her in Hawaii. I was with my husband. We were on a what they call a baby moon, which is hysterical. A baby moon. I've, I've heard of that recently. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid. Yeah. Just another excuse to pay, <laughs> spend a bunch of money and go to Hawaii. But um, Yeah, yeah. We were in this like cavern and, and I remember his grandpa had just died. Mm. I just like took it upon myself to sit on a rock and just start doing like some mindfulness. I was just breathing mm. and and mm. it's just so clear they both came to me. They were just like I could feel them. Like I didn't right. see them, but like, you know. Right. Um just started weeping and I just got this sense that like we were about to have our son and I remember them saying like everything's gonna be good. Like <laughs> I love it. Thank you for sharing about your upbringing, and I think people should read the book. It's really beautiful and goes into much more detail, but it's clear to me that healer, artist, activist, that's what you are, right? Wow. So my question is, is that a fair summary to come to? And then just to close this section out, for people out there who are trying to figure themselves out and kind of sort through their families, mm. did you sort of always have that awareness of those pieces of you or, you know, has it taken you a lifetime mm. to sort of figure it out? I would say it's a fair assessment as far as your question goes, because I've always looked at my father who was, you know, someone who used his voice and was a storyteller. And, and then here's my mother who was a nurse and she was a healer. So when I look at who I come from, I've always felt this overwhelming feeling that I was, I was put here to use my voice to help heal people. That's always 
the Naomi has always been in my work, always been in my writing. It's one trying to heal myself, trying to uplift myself. But then the more I got into my work and the more I shared, the more I did shows, the more opportunities would come. It became more and more evident that the work that healed myself had the same effect on others. So here I was, you know, even with Dear Father, that was a poem that I wrote for me. I was devastated that after that divorce, I didn't see it here from my pops for 10 years and I'm in college and I lose my grandmother. And, and it was just devastating to not have him in my life and not hear from him, not talk to him. I felt like poetry and just having, I guess, the sense or the wherewithal to write my feelings down. I didn't know at the time that it would have the effect on me that it would. I didn't know it would help heal me. It would help you know, lift this weight up off of me. It would help me reconnect with my father. It would help me have a much deeper appreciation for him. So your mom and uh, you had a teacher named Miss Argue, which I yeah. find to be hilarious um, yeah, and wonderful, me too. Uh, <laughs> told you that you had this gift. Probably being told that you had a gift was mm. kind of the kickoff for your spoken word, your writing, all of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My junior year English teacher, her name was Ms. Argue. What I learned is you're not going to argue with somebody named Ms. Argue. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, I think I've heard that joke. I've been researching and reading. Yeah. I think I've heard it like four or five times now. I'll tell it doesn't it so get old. much. It, it doesn't, doesn't get, get old. old. No. Nope. And, and it makes me laugh that it doesn't get old. <laughs> I, I laugh at the fact that it, it always makes me laugh. It's great. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, Ms. Argue, she had us write a poem for homework. And I wasn't into poetry. I was I was good at writing notes. You know, I would write notes to the girls, let them know how I felt. But yeah. I wasn't social. I lacked confidence. I had low self-esteem. And the poets were, for me, were the MCs. Hip-hop, that's where I went to for my storytellers. And, and so when she said, write a poem, like, write a poem. So I go home. <laughs> she didn't give us subject matter. So I'm like, what, what do I write about? And I remember looking out my window and I saw some clouds and I was like, I'm going to write a poem called It Once Was a Cloud, which was about the cloud changing forms. You know, I mean, it's the game we all play. So I wrote this poem and I come to class the next day expecting to turn it in. And Ms. Argue surprises the class and makes everybody read their poem in front of the class. So here I am, this shy kid who lacked confidence, like, oh, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and I'm like, my boys, you know, they got enough material, comedy material when it comes to me. <laughs> like, they got enough to talk about. So, so to give them this, I was devastated. But one by one, everybody read that poem in the class. And, and then after class, she pulled me to the side and she gives me an A on the poem. And I wasn't getting any... A's or B's, you know, some C's. So to see this big red A blaring back at me, it was like, oh my God, like I got an A? Like I, I, I hadn't had an A in a while. And really, when I was young, I was always on the honor roll. When I look back, the shift came from when my folks divorced. And it was like my grades dropped and I cared less about the outcome of what I was doing in the class. If something was too difficult, I would just kind of, you know, give up on it. To see an A, I was like, oh my God, I... Wow. So then she said, you have a nice speaking voice. I have a show coming up and I want you to do this sh perform at this talent show. And I was like, nah, I ain't trying to do that. You know? <laughs> so, so I didn't do the show. 
A few weeks goes by. Miss Argue, she approaches me again. She said, you know what? Last time I asked you to do this show, you faked me out. I have another show coming up. This time I'm not asking you. You have to do it. So Miss Argue, she makes me do this show. And the next few weeks, I rehearse. She gives me a piece to learn. I rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. And we get to the show. And I always describe it. Like the feeling you have when you go to Great America or whatever amusement park is in your area. And you're like, oh, I'm going to get on that ride. First, you stand in the line, you wait. <laughs> like, oh, this line oh, is long. You're in line for an hour. just thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> Sun's beating on you, you know, all that. You're like, oh, my God. So then you finally get in the ride. Like, oh, okay, cool. We made it to the front. And then they start taking you up, up, up. You're like, <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> what did I what, agree to? What am I doing? Right. <laughs> you're a mile in the sky. You're looking around. You're like, what am I doing? And then you want to get off, but you can't get off. <laughs> That's oh, exactly gosh. how I felt. Next thing I know, I'm I'm on the big drop, which was me basically reciting this piece. And I remember uh, I recited it. I was so nervous that when I finished, I just rushed off with my head down. And the kid that I was sitting next to, he was like, oh, man, you see that? You see that? I was like, well, see what? He was like, man, you got a standing ovation. I said, what? He was like, you ain't see them kids stand up for you? I was like, no. And I was like, Ms. Argue, when's the next show? Yeah. <laughs> when's the next show? Instantly, my life changed. It was in that moment I realized I did have a voice. People would listen. I wasn't the nobody that I thought I was. She opened my eyes to my purpose. And I was also taught the lesson of having the courage to live in that purpose. Like, you know, you can get past your fear. The potential of what you can do is, is endless. So, so yeah, man, I love Ms. Argue for, for seeing something in me that I, I was like completely clueless to. I, I had no idea. And, and that's kind of mind-blowing. Like, how do you have this and don't realize you have it? You like, that's, that's mind-boggling to me. Makes you think, huh? Educators, teachers, they can be kind of a family too. We have so much more with J.I.V. coming up, including my favorite story about how he ended up working with Kanye West and Jay-Z and what that story teaches us about artistic families. If you're enjoying this conversation, don't forget to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or add us on any of the other great podcast apps. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this podcast. So, Miss Argue convinced Jay Ivey that he was a poet and he belonged on stage. Fast forward a few years and Jay scored an invite to perform at an HBO Def Jam poetry event, which was a huge deal. Not just because of what happened on stage, but because that's where his friendship with a guy named Cootie turned into one of his most important creative partnerships. Cootie's my brother. He's from Chicago, so we actually met in Chicago where he was doing comedy. So Cootie was a comedian. He had been on Comic View. We drove like promotional vehicles. Like I used to drive a promo truck for Sprite and he drove a promo truck for uh, for The Source and Dr. Pepper. So we always see each other. 
And then when I did deaf poetry, I went out to New York to tape and I didn't tell anybody I was doing it. So I was out there uh, solo. And when I walked in, I ran to a buddy of mine who also does comedy. And he was like, oh man, he's like cootie upstairs. I said, what? I was like, get out of here. I'm, I'm just surprised to see anybody from Chicago. So I go upstairs and I run into Cootie and John John. I'm like, yo, what's going on, man? How y'all doing? What up? What up? What up? John John was like, man, you doing this? You doing this show? I was like, yeah. And Wasn't it was two- Amiri Baraka there also and Dave Chappelle? Yeah. And- yeah. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. My heart was beating all night. <laughs> all night. Dead. I would have been dead. I either film right before or right after Amiri Baraka. And I remember feeling <laughs> like, I was like, oh, this, this is not fair. Like, this is- <laughs> I, you know, y'all wrong for this. You know, y'all. I, I, I really, I remember having that feeling. Like y'all gonna put me up. I feel like I went up after him. I feel like it was that, like y'all gonna put me up after that. that I feel like that was the feel- like, Oh man, it was cra- it was the craziest feeling. And oh, you know, but Dave Chappelle was there. Show love. I did this poem called "I Need to Write." When I walked out on that stage a few hours later, the whole front, like the left front row, was all Chicago's Cootie, John John, all that. I need. To write. I need to sit my black narrow ass down and write. Yeah, the hustle got me hustling, but I'm muscling myself out of time for me. Well, what about me, I ask? What about the stories that I need to tell? I need to write. Because can't nobody do it for me. Can't nobody document my inspirations the way I can. Can't nobody compliment my aspirations the way I can. Only I can. Only I can. Only I can. So I need to write. I need to get up some words and rights. I need to get up some thoughts and rights. I need to write because I'm tired of the same old So after that, me and Cootie, we just stayed in tune. So over the next year, he was like, man, he was like, you should think about moving out here. Jay, you do well out here. You should move. You should move. So he was just kept encouraging me to move to New York. So eventually did move. And then now we kicking it every day. So when I get to New York, he decided to stop doing comedy and to focus all his energy on Kanye who was right in the midst of getting his record deal. But he had started filming him in Chicago before Kanye moved to New York. He was filming him in Chicago. Kanye moved in 2000, Cootie moved in 01, and I ended up moving in 02. And me and Cootie kicking it every day. So now I'm with Kanye every day. Now we're in the studio and we go into this club. And remember my birthday party, I'd only been in New York not too long and Kanye DJed at my birthday party, just having fun. He's DJing <laughs> at my birthday party. So Cootie, he he gets a call one day from Kanye after Kanye got into the car accident. And me and Cootie, we riding through Harlem and Kanye calls him and Cootie looks at me. He's like, man, this dude ain't supposed to be talking right now and he's mm. rapping. Like so, he's rapping him through the wire. I was like, yo, he, I was like, he, he determined, you know, <laughs> he determined. He determined like, it was just so wild to me. So he's like, man, Cootie, I need you out here. So he flew Cootie out the next day. So Cootie hitting me up every day, like, oh man, Jay, you need to get to L.A. Man, it's popping out here. You gotta hit this music. Yeah. But I was broke, I, so I didn't have money to go out. Saturday night, I'm in Brooklyn, broke by myself, writing, I'm writing. <laughs> And then I'm and I'm actually writing about me and my father reconnecting when he called me. And he called me by eleven o'clock that night, like, Jay, man, you need to get to LA right now. I was like, What? I was like, What's up? He was like, Man, Kanye got a song with him and Jay Z on it, and he wanna put a poet on it. And I told him he need to put Jay Ivy on it. I'm like, man, stop playing, man. I'm like, that ain't <laughs> 
Like, that ain't funny. He a funny dude. So I'm like, man, that ain't funny. I'm like, come on, man. He was like, no, man, you need to get out tomorrow if you can. I was like, oh, you for real? So he goes, he's in the studio. So he goes in the other room. He plays a song for me over the phone. He, so I hung up the phone. And my very first thought was, you need to write something right now. So I turned to a blank page. I wrote the title down, Never Let Me Down. And I wrote the date. And then I wrote the first thing that came to my mind. We all here for a reason on a particular path. You don't need a curriculum to know that you're a part of the math. And then my mind went completely blank. I was like, no, I was like, no, this is not the time for writer's block. So I started banging on the page. I was like, God, I need a piece right now. I was like, please give me one right now. And I put my hand back to the page. My hand just started moving and moving and writing and writing and writing and writing. And I wrote a full page to turn the page over. I read over it, read over it. I called Cootie back in like 10 minutes like, man, listen to this. So I, I spit the poem from over the phone. He was like, oh, man, that's crazy. That's crazy. Like, hold on, hold on. So he goes and and another room and, and the music's loud people talking so then everything goes quiet music is quiet people they quiet down he's like jay i'm put you on speakerphone spit the piece again i performed that poem like i had done it a million times already you know I'm, if i were on the highest cliff on the highest riff and i'm going in and when i finish the room erupted everybody's like oh man oh man oh man <laughs> i'm in brooklyn broke by myself like what's up what's good what's happening you know, like somebody tell me something what's happening you know <laughs> so then i hear kanye kanye like man jay spit it again so i spit it again spit it again i spit it again spit it again i spit it again i did the poem for like a half hour and the piece is a minute long so i did it over and over and over and over again and then cootie finally got back on the phone he was like jay guess what i'm like what he was like kanye flying you out here tomorrow I said, I found my way. <laughs> found my way. And now people so, call that one of the greatest verses in hip hop. Man, I've, I've, I've heard. I've, so I've heard. So I've heard. <laughs> so I've yeah. Heard. Yeah. I, I receive it. I receive it. You know, <laughs> like, like that Great wasn't story. Like, like you never know what, what the outcome would be or how people will receive things. So to hear yeah. comments like that is like hip hop. Like, you know how many amazing <laughs> verses there have been in hip hop? Jay Ivey's book is Dear Father, Breaking the Cycle of Pain. It sparked a nationwide letter-writing project where people inspired by his work wrote their own letters to their fathers, whether they can actually give the letters to their fathers to read or not. The idea is to help the person writing heal. Reading Jay's book was intense for me because I have a complicated relationship with my own father, and Jay's work has helped me think about forgiveness differently. I asked him what it took for him to start forgiving his dad. Absolutely, I have to start with well, my big cousin, Julia, who was named after my grandmama. And Julia, she, she's like, like the big mama of our generation. And she was the first person that I opened up to and talked to about my father. And this was like after college, because I didn't finish college. I flunked out. I was depressed. And then I ended up back home, back in my mama's house, staying in her basement, just feeling like a bum, no job, not in school. And so I remember opening up and talking to to my cousin, Julia, and I was really just venting. And she listened and she said, look, she said, you need to learn how to forgive. She said, if you don't learn how to forgive, you're going to carry that pain with you for the rest of your life. And I was like, oh. I was like, I don't want to feel like this for the rest of my life. Like, you know, I don't, I don't want to feel this heaviness, this burden, this, 
this anger, this this sadness, this heaviness, this stress, this anxiety. I don't want to feel this forever. But at the same time, I mean, the, the concept of forgiveness is just never, never dawned on me. And, and, and mind you, this is 10 years after my folks had divorced. I still haven't seen or heard from them. So I was really just, you know, care enough to pick up the phone. And just, man, how you doing? What's what's going on? How your brother's doing? How your mama doing? You know, so it, it really, um, just the idea of forgiveness was just so far out of reach until she planted that seed. I was like, so then after that, I would just literally hear her echo in my mind, like, you need to learn how to forgive. You need to learn how to forgive. So a few months went past. And I remember uh, being at church, was performing at a youth revival. I was performing with one of my buddies who was singing. And we did a piece together. And then they asked him to come back up and sing another song. And then he uh, he gave a testimony about losing his sister, his younger sister, when he was in high school. And just seeing his hurt, I mean, it just made me hurt. This is one of my guys. So to see him hurt, I felt his pain. And I saw the void in his life and then seeing his void, it made me think about my void. It made me think about my pain and my hurt. And I started thinking about my father. And especially in that moment, knowing that she was no longer here, my father, he was still here. So I felt like I could fix this somehow, some way I could fix this. So I remember in that moment, I just started praying and praying and praying and praying. And I became so overwhelmed with tears. And, and I just was just asking God, I said, God, I forgive my father. I just want to see him. I just want to tell him I love him, tell him I miss him. I, I, I just want to see him. One of my guys picked me up and he just held me. He was like, God has his hands on you right now. It's all right. It's all right. Two weeks later on a Thursday, evening after 10 plus years my father calls me up out of the blue mm. i cried the Nile river that day mm. you know the, the now amazon and the mississippi i cried all those rivers that day and i remember uh just hearing his voice he's hurt then i'm hurt and and he's hurt because he know he calls the hurt and my mother she walks in and sees one of her babies balled up on the floor and then she rushes. She's like, Jimmy, boy, what's wrong with you? And then I'm literally trying to talk. And I'm like, I, and nothing would come out. I was literally choked up. And then I was like, man, dad, I miss you. I miss you. I love you, man. I'm coming to see you. Where you at? You know. So this was a Thursday. So, And I went over to his house that Sunday. I'm expecting to see a giant because last time I saw him with my own eyes, I was a little boy. And now here I am towering over him. I've passed him up in height. He looked, you know, beat up. Like life had really beat him up. So I just hugged him. I was like, man, dad, I was like, I love you, man. I miss you. And then we, we went into his apartment and he was just this, he was just this lonely old man. And it was just so hard seeing him, you know, live like that. And, um, and we sat and we watched the football game, the Bears were on. So we watched the Bears game like like we did when I was little. And it was just this beautiful moment to share and reconnect. And I really, I was just so overwhelmed and so grateful because of just having the conscious mind to forgive. Like, again, like I had that, that was something that never, ever crossed my mind. My, like anger and all, it, it wouldn't let me. You know, I, I couldn't see through that thickness. I couldn't see through that, through those clouds and and uh, forgiveness. It, it allowed for clarity to exist. And 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 I realized it was more so for me than it was for him. 
Like, let me get this weight up off of me and me getting the weight up off of me. It'll free him up as well. Hopefully, hopefully he wouldn't feel the guilt and feel that burden as much as he as he once had. So did forgiveness look like you going to his house? Is that what the moment of forgiveness really was? It was like or or for me, the moment was when I prayed to God and was mm. like, God, I forgive my dad. I just want to see him. If I never seen him again, I still would have felt some comfort in knowing that he didn't go without me just letting those negative feelings and emotions go. But then a year and a half after we reconnected, he passed away. So now I'm going through this roller coaster of emotions and I'm mad all over again. I'm angry and I'm depressed and I'm, I'm just in the darkest space I've ever been in my life. Eventually realized in that moment that I needed to forgive again. I needed to truly let go. And and a lot of that came with empathizing with him just as a human being. Like, okay, our parents, they aren't these indestructible superheroes that we make them out to be. Because I mean, mm-hmm. for so long, you know, we were small and they were big and we all we're always looking up, constantly looking up, looking up, looking up, looking up. And they're grown, so you don't know their problems. You don't know their issues. They don't share that side. So When I was a kid, I never knew that my father, his mother passed when he was four years old with him in her arms. And they literally had to take my father away from her deceased grasp. They had to like peel her arms off of him and take him away. And that was a moment that my mother said he would always share with her. Like he never forgot that moment. And so I know if I can remember my dad snatching my training wheels off my little orange bike when I was two, I'm sure he remembered his mother passing when, you know, when he was four. So, so to grow up with that pain and then from there to be abused and, you know, move from house to house. And it's like, okay, I know what it is now to be an adult, to have human feelings, to know the the depth of our hurt. And I can look at him and say, you know what? I forgive you. Tari, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, she was a tremendous part of allowing me to reconcile and to think and to just consider other ways of dealing with things. And one of the main things she said, because she was the second person I opened up to. First it was Julian and Tari, she pretty much became my therapist. And I remember just telling her how I felt. And she said, you got to break the cycle. I said, break the cycle. Me just loving words. I was like, break the cycle. It's like, that sounds dope. (laughs) You know, like I never heard that concept. And I was like, oh, it is a cycle. It's this generational cycle of pain, of hurt. This is going back to Jim Crow and slave days and just all these different things, all these different traumatic moments that we've had to deal with as black folks in this country that pass on generation after generation after generation, the wealth gap, all of it, all of it's tied to generational um, disparities that just continue. So when she said break the cycle, I was like, oh, wow, it is a cycle. Okay, so I want to close things out. I'm wondering if you have any advice for Hmm. me or for anyone else who's listening who might be thinking about putting together 
their own dear father letter for, you know, their dad or just like a complicated caretaker from their past? Yeah, I would just try to be as free and as honest as possible and see him for just as a human being first, you know, not as the title of father, but just as a just as a human being, the same compassion that you would have for any other human being. Apply that love right before I wrote Dear Father, the poem Dear Father. And the reason I wrote it was because my mother called me in New York and she said, boy, what's going on with you? I know something going on. You haven't been talking to me. You haven't been talking to Tari. What's, what's going on? And then for the first time, I opened up to my mother about how I was feeling regarding my father. And this, again, is a about a year and a half after he's passed away. And um, I opened up to her and she listened and she said, look, your father was a good man. Let him rest in peace. Mm. And it hit me. I was like, one, you know, I'm going to always listen to my mama, right? There's something about the effect of a mother that you, you hear them louder. Two, I did know he was a good man. When I when I really thought about it, like he was a good person. He was just hurt. I did want to let him rest in peace. I decided to listen to my mother take heed, and I wrote that poem, Dear Father. And after I wrote it with tears on the page, immediately I could feel the weight just lift off of me. And I, I just like literally was like, oh my God, I feel so much better. So much better knowing that here, even though he isn't here physically, I'm I'm having this conversation with him. Before I let J.I.V. go, I had to ask him to read something for me. This one is a piece about his father and deals with some of the things we've been talking about on this episode. We forgive, then forget to forgive again. The voices speak. Memories leak their pain. We remember how it felt all over again. We feel it all over again. The past becomes right now. Right now, it hurts like hell. It feels like a digging dagger dipped in death spell. It hurts like it did way back then. The same story finds the same emotions. Our past becomes our future. We repeat our regrets. We hang ourselves with our habits. The cycle continues. We sprint in place. We run on oil. We forget to let go. We can't let go of our minds. We reminisce, shed light on what happened. We have flashbacks. We flashback quantum leap into yesterday. Anger grows again. Sadness grows again. You're mad all over again. Time spins. We spend time, waste time on those emotions all over again. Pretend like we don't feel it. It feels fresh. Our flesh feels the effects. Our bodies grow heavy. Hands unsteady. The petty things carry weight. We get mad at everything, everybody. Nobody understands. Nobody can. Somebody will. The stranger in the mirror still smiles. The friend in the mirror still smiles. Give me that back. I want my joy is mine. It belongs to me. Happiness loves company. Misery hates my company because I want to be happy. I'm happy knowing that we have love for one another. Love has been smothered by life, by wrongs and rights, by guilt, by feelings we can't shake. The weight grows so heavy, anchoring us in the depths of our deepest ocean. The potion is real. The drugs don't heal. They just numb our thoughts. We wake and feel the crooks. We stick out our stiff necks praying we won't be hurt again, but it hurts again and again. We forget 
to forgive again and again before rebrewing the anger, our self dangers, knowing that unconditional love is the only way to end this. Unconditional love is the true art of forgiveness. Ah, that's Jay Ivey reading a poem about forgiveness. It's easier said than done, right? But reflecting on a person's life and how or why they arrived at the decisions they made can really bring about understanding and sometimes even compassion. I was walking with my son today and I had the thought that plants on the sidewalk that came up to my shin actually reach his head. Plants are like trees to him. Then I remember how much we look up, literally, as children, to objects, to people, wonder. I have clear memories still of my mom, my dad, my grandparents as these monumental, towering figures just looking up. They were superheroes who could do no wrong. Then time goes by. We grow up and... Our perspectives grow up with us until our caretakers are no longer towering. Especially in our teenage years, even something tiny, maybe even annoying or distant. And depending on how good our relationship is, some of us even have breaks in those bonds. And our caregivers go from superheroes to people we don't even recognize. My own father has had a rough go of it in the last chapter of his life. And honestly, being a dad myself has allowed me to spend some time in his shoes. Even in his darkest moments, it's clear to me now that he was just a human person going through life, trying to do the best he could with the cards that he was dealt. Like me, he's a flawed person who makes mistakes. As we put an end to the dumpster fire of this year, I'm calling on this new community to take a moment to reflect on those complicated caretakers in our life. And if you're able to take this step, see what it feels like to step into their shoes. And that will be a difficult and different process for each one of us. For me, that looks like writing my own dear father letter. I know it will be challenging because there's a lot to say and honesty is hard, especially when it's complicated or painful but I know it'll be worth it because articulating your truth and sharing that with someone else is almost always healing thanks for listening to this is my family you can find Jay Ivy at j-ivyivy.com or all the social media platforms his latest album is Chasing Dreams it is amazing get it wherever you get your music This is the end of our first season, and while we get to work on the next episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Go to timfshow.com slash survey to tell us more about you and what you like and don't like about this show. We're giving away a single $100 gift card to one person who fills that out before the end of the year. Good luck, and thanks for that in advance. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at timfshow. Our website is timfshow.com. 
The show is a production of The Story Producer, and it's produced by me, Trisha Bobita, and Jackie Ball. It's edited and mixed by Adam Yaffe. Our music is by Andrew Edwards. Community manager is Annika Exum. And last but certainly not least, our art director is my handsome husband, Ziwoo Jo. If you like this show, please help spread the good word. We're going to be sort of off-season for about a month. So I would love, love, love if you would please share your favorite episode with a friend, family member, co-worker. That is the way that we will be able to grow our community and keep making more episodes for you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Tyler Green. And until next time, stay beautiful and messy. Is the podcast all done, Sam?